Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> that little song, that I think that's the first time I've heard that song, but that doesn't mean a lot. You guys may have sung it before, but anyway. That's the essence of Christianity. If you want to boil Christianity down to the core, not my will, but thine be done. That's it. A scripture that I want to look at and then kind of use as a springboard is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> and we'll just read a couple verses beginning with verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment, the purpose of this commandment, or other versions say, the end of my preaching the aim of what of my ministry is what this is a big verse paul saying my purpose in not only this command to you but everything i preach this is my aim here it is love this is the purpose of my preaching love from a pure heart from a good conscience and from sincere faith from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Now, <clears throat> this is at the end, near the end of Paul's life and ministry. He is, this is a prison um, originating epistle. We take to heart his summation of his ministry and his life and of his message. And his message is that we love God with all of our heart out of a pure heart, love that flows from a pure heart, a good conscience. It's supported by, it is governed by, the love that flows out of a pure heart is governed by a good conscience and it is supported and sustained and lifted by sincere faith. That's Paul's whole ministry in capsule form. Therefore, the things that Paul assumed were critical to his ministry should be critical to us. This should be our aim. This should be every personal aim of everyone professing to be a follower of Jesus. This should be our aim. So, continuing with the subject of pure-heartedness, which Paul says here, love out of a pure heart. We're not born with a pure heart. 
There isn't any hint in Scripture or in church history by anybody that once we have been saved from our sinning and the bondage to sin, that we have a pure heart then. Nobody teaches that. Literally. There was one little group that clashed with John Wesley in the 1700s. They were called Moravians. There's a few of them still around as a denomination. They were led by a guy by the name of Count Zinzendorf. Uh, Wesley butted heads with him uh, over the idea that you are saved and purified. You're both forgiven and cleansed at once in the new birth, which the Bible doesn't teach that. Christian experience denies it. All theologians everywhere deny that. He backed off and reneged or you know, reputed that teaching. Uh, no one believes that when we're first saved, even though we're gloriously freed from the bondage of sinning, that we have a pure heart. Everyone acknowledges that we still have remaining in our hearts the remnants of, subdued, but the remnants of the inherited sinful nature. So nobody disagrees with that. Where we separate is what does God propose to do about it? Does he leave it alone during this life? We just suffer with it, we battle against it, and God gives us grace, we flop around, we fail, we fall, we get back up, we fall, we get back up, and we do that ad nauseum until finally Gillette Memorial Chapel takes us on out of here. That's the dominant position, I might add. Um, I don't believe for one minute that the Bible teaches that. It teaches that the blood of Jesus, according to 1 John, cleanses from all sin. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. That must mean you can have one in this life. Paul said, every single thing I preach is to produce love out of a pure heart. St. John in 1 John talks about not only purity, but he uses a word that we have to have smelling salts all throughout the sanctuary. So they're readily available. Perfect. Perfect love. He said, if you fear judgment, you're not yet made perfect in love. Then he speaks to those who he said, if you love the brethren like yourself, you have been made perfect in love. It must be possible in this life. That's why we have to preach it. It's not a John Wesley, founder of the Methodist hobby horse that we just one-string fiddle. We, it was a one-string fiddle with Paul. He said, this is everything I aim for all the time I preach. Love out of the pure heart. So purity is entirely possible and it's expected as the norm for healthy Christians in this life. It is why Jesus told the disciples, don't leave Jerusalem till you receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We need it. We must have it. Why? Well, I've been talking about it for several weeks and there's probably, you know, levels of weariness with it, but 
since I do my dead level best to ask God, what do I do? What do I preach? And I haven't got a message, truly. I haven't got anything to say until I get some impression that I sure hope from God, okay? Um, that's the only place you get a message. I want to look at what can be confusing about pure-heartedness or being made perfect in love in this way. What does a synonym for being purified, entire sanctification, what Paul prayed for for the Thessalonians, I pray that God would sanctify you through and through, thoroughly, entirely. What does it do? What doesn't it do? What to expect? What not to expect? This is a huge area of uh, fog, misunderstanding, and much of the misunderstanding, to be just honest, comes from the devil. And I won't spend much time on this. The devil, I do not mean to say that the devil is not upset and irritated when some dear sinner runs up the white flag, repents, asks Jesus to forgive them and come into their heart and make them his child. Now, the devil's not throwing it. He doesn't have you know, pointy hats and noisemakers in the cake when that happens. But I'm going to be just as honest with you as I can. He's worried, but he's not up nights worried. Because as long as the beachhead in my heart of the inherited sinful nature remains, he's got a really good chance of getting me back into his camp. He hates, hates, hates the doctrine that that nature can be cleansed from my heart in this life because he's lost the Normandy beachhead that is going to make defeat very remote. The battle is largely... <laughs> It, it, it turns horribly against the devil. Not just when I get converted, but when that nature to which he can appeal in the life of the Christian. When that's removed, he's got to change his whole strategy. And his chances of luring me and drawing me back into a life of sin have been made quite remote. That's why he hates this doctrine. That's why he loves to sow it with discord, with misunderstanding, and false charges. Well, you're perfect. Never make a mistake. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. But we're often charged with that. That's why I want to look at what does it do and what doesn't it do. And I hate to tell you this. I guess I don't hate to tell you this. This isn't going to be the last sermon. Uh, there's some things that will come up today that I need to clarify um, in at least one or two more sermons. So, looking at Pentecost, where the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter said, our hearts were purified by faith. What does it do? One, 
purifies the heart of the inherited sinful nature. Two, fills the heart completely with the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit residing in my heart when I'm converted, but He does not have all of me. I have yet to come to the place, like I gave you the quote, simple little quote, but it's a good one, from A.W. Tozer. We first must forsake our sins, and then we must go on and forsake ourselves. The heart of Christianity, as I said from that little song we sang, Father, not my will, but thine be done. That's the core of Christianity that God wants us to get to. And the only way we can get there is first forsake the practice of sinning in the new birth and then forsake ourselves and our agenda and our ambitions and our way, our opinion in cleansing from that sinful nature, the core of which is I want to do what I want to do. Now, as a new believer, often we, we still want to do what we want to do, but God's supposed to help us do that. He's supposed to give that to us. Don't deny it to me, Lord, or I might be upset. You understand? He wants to take that out, can, does. Third, he thus enables us when he fills our hearts and cleanses from the inward sinful nature. He enables us to fulfill the great commandments. Jesus summarized the entire law of God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You cannot do that fully until God takes the big I out of here. Then I can love God and say, even though, notice that song and that song that we sang came from the Garden of Gethsemane. The words, the prayer of Jesus. Not my will, but thine be done. What does that mean? Even Jesus in his humanness, he had a will. He had a preference. And he told the Father his preference. If it's possible, please let this cup pass by. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We don't lose our opinions, our wills, our hopes, our agendas, but they are subservient to God. And when we find out that God has a different path for us, we can say, Lord, thy will be done. You know best. And say it with sincerity and mean it. Ab enables us to love God with our whole heart, our neighbor, as ourselves. Fourth, it gives us a new power against temptation. When we, the, a wonderful illustration, you have to know very little bit here, don't need to know much, about Robert's rules of order in running a board meeting. Somebody has to make a motion and it can't be discussed and it won't go anywhere until somebody else seconds it. Okay? Best little description I've heard is the devil makes a motion 
and the sinful nature seconds it. He is appealing to something that's already inclined towards rebellion. It's subdued. There's grace to deny it. But the Christian feels its stirrings. The devil makes a motion. The old man of the heart, Romans, seconds it. When you get the second removed from your heart, it's easier to resist temptation. Temptation is no longer, really, the, the unsanctified Christian fights a two-front war. Not very many two-front wars ever get won. I am fighting temptation from out here, but the very fight that I'm trying to fight is weakened by something in here that sort of likes the temptation. I am, that's why the devil hates this message. It removes that something in here that responds. It's almost a magnetic draw to the very temptation I'm not supposed to do. It makes temptation fighting harder. When God removes that, I'm still tempted. Now, there are people who say, well, if, that was, if that's gone out of your heart, there's nothing to tempt. That's a really dumb theological statement. All we need to know is this. Adam and Eve never had a sinful nature. They got tempted and they fell. Jesus, in his humanity, came here and was tempted in every point like us, yet without sin. Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. He was pure. He still got tempted. We will be tempted. E. I have alphabet. I have the alphabet here, not numbers. I've lost track. Four was new power against temptation. E, clarified vision into scripture and spiritual issues in general. There was a dullness, very obvious dullness, that Jesus brought strong attention to with the disciples. He would say, you're slow of heart to believe. You're of little faith. Why don't you understand? And on the day of Pentecost, so you can't learn this, it was a result of a purified heart. Peter got up, and the same Peter who just a few days earlier than that, Jesus had nailed his hide to the wall in front of everybody and said, you're an adversary to me because you're concerned only with the things of men and not the things of God. He gets up, preaches a sermon the likes of which nobody's ever preached. 3,000 people are converted. That was an altar invitation and a half. And what did he do? Point after point after point from the Old Testament, from the Scripture, he laid out this is what that means. That's what this means. That's what this statement meant here. This is being fulfilled now. He had a vision and a clarified view into the spiritual things of God in the Scripture that he'd never had before. That's something we get. Discernment of the Spirit's leading in our life. 
there is that still small voice, that barely sometimes perceptible prompting. And you just sense God puts somebody on your mind or he prompts you to do this, say that, or shut up. But he talks to us and we sense that. There's kind of a, you ever tried to, you ever tried to work on something kind of small with gloves on? That's kind of like sometimes how carnal Christians are. I, I can't sense things very well. But when our vision is clarified and our heart is absolutely dead to m pushing my agenda, I'm open to hear from God. He talks to us. And so there is a new discernment to his leading. There's a new power for service in the house of God, the kingdom of God, and for witnessing. He gives you words out of nowhere to speak when you're called on with no warning. It, frankly, the life of having a pure heart and being absolutely dead to, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Yeah, the devil fights you like a Comanche, and he's always there, and the world's pressing on you, and there's all kinds of stuff going on. But that is a wonderful way to live. There's nothing like, and I know many of you have sensed it, some little prompting, and you just think, you know, I need to pray for so-and-so, and I'm going to call them. You call them, and you say, you know, you've been on my mind. And then to discover, they say, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm having a rough time. This is going on. That's going on. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can describe the, the sense of, a, of, I don't know what. Accomplishment's probably not a good word. But just the sense of, thank you, God, that I heard your voice and was able to help some dear soul, some saint, in a battle. No one knew about it, except you did. And you said to me, or to somebody else, they're in trouble. Call them. Ah, that's a wonderful way to live. Finally, there's a heightened awareness to and avoidance of sin. The Holy Spirit is close to us, and He just He He warns us. Look out! Don't don't go there. I don't know sometimes what He might be sparing me from or what He sees down the road, but He He sees the road. Listen to that still small voice. That doesn't exhaust all the things that sanctification does for us. Here's what it doesn't do. It does not remove the possibility of future sin. We retain a free will. We always retain a free will. It's part of the image of God that he put into us. It's called the natural image. And the natural image is we are like God in that we can choose, we can reason, and we feel emotions, mind, intellect, 
choice, volition, will. Those three aspects, faculties that we have as humans are part of the image and likeness of God. The moral image is the image that was wrecked in the Garden of Eden. The moral image is really the condition of and the use of will, reason, and feelings. They are affected but remain. The moral image we don't have any longer, meaning righteousness. The moral image is now depravity. God can fix that and does. There are three reasons that we're not ever beyond the possibility of sinning and I don't need to go into all this except just in case anybody isn't clear on it. There's no such thing in the Bible. I know there's a lot of teaching and I frankly admit it's majority teaching but I don't care if it's majority. It's wrong. It's absolutely blatantly unscriptural and that is the notion that once you get right with God you can never fall from that. You never turn and walk away from it. That is simply not true. And the first introduction of that notion came from the devil in the Garden of Eden who told Eve, God's not telling you the truth when he said, if you sin, you'll die. Once you're written in the book, people tell us, your name is never, never blotted out. Well, they need to read the conversation between Moses and God. Moses was so wrought up in his soul over God said, get out of the way. I'm going to blow away all these Israelites. I've had it. And I'm going to raise up another nation from you. Moses fell on his face on the mountain. He said, oh God, please don't do that. He said, I would, I would even offer to have my name blotted out of your book. And you know how God responded. No one can ever be blotted out of my name. Once you're saved, you're always saved. He didn't say that. He said, no. I only blot out of my book those who sin against me. That's in the Bible. So that's why this is a big question. If sin can't set me, separate me from God once I've had a work of God in my heart, then I don't need to be talking about watching out for sin and it's still possible. Big deal. We're saved. So what? We can fall. Quote John Wesley, there is no state of grace in this world or in this life from which we cannot fall. And he's right. We have to walk with God and keep it till the day we die. And the devil's snapping at her heels the whole time. Interesting, the devil doesn't believe in eternal security. <laughs> or he wouldn't bother the saints. Here's three reasons why the possibility of future sin is never off the table. That we must be on guard. One, our free will. We always retain a free will. We can choose. Two, our foe. The devil, he doesn't quit. He never quits. And then three, our frailties. We're human. We grow weary. 
We have varying degrees of intellectual ability, emotional stability. There are a thousand things, and that's what I want to deal with in the future. But there, there are frailties in our temperament and our thinking and our emotions that are, can become weak spots for the devil to shoot his arrows at. And so for at least these three reasons, we are still um, must be on guard lest we turn away from God. Second thing that sanctification does not do, it does not exempt us from temptation. We've kind of covered that, won't spend much time on it. Three, it doesn't remove our humanness and its fallen state. We are now, we're fallen, we're, we're damaged, heavily damaged. We can be made free and pure from sin, but not from the effects of sin. The scars of our own past sinning, bad memories, the, the scars upon us of evil upbringing and cruel parents and abusive. There are a hundred things that we still live with. I can have a clean heart. I can have a pure heart, but to quote Paul, we have this treasure, this light, he said, in our hearts. He said, the God who brought light out of darkness fills our heart with light. The next verse, 2 Corinthians, he says, but we have this treasure, this light of God in our heart in earthen jars in clay jars. There's the weakness, not sinfulness, but the damaged, the damage from sin. It has affected us. And so that we deal with, and we're not freed from that. We can work on it. God helps us. He gives us grace. We can mature. But largely, the frailties failings, the involuntary shortcomings, we do not get rid of those until heaven. Until we are glorified. Third, <clears throat> it is the beginning <clears throat> of accelerated growth, not the end of it. Some people think if you get a pure heart, you're, you've right. No. You just started. Another quote from John Wesley that is correct. Sanctification allows us to grow at a more accelerated rate. Why don't Christians grow rapidly? Because they've still got a bent in here the other direction. Remove that, and I'm all God's, and then I'll grow faster. So it is the beginning of growth and maturity and experience, learning, not, not the completion of it. It does, not make, it does not make us mature. When I was in college, I read, I think it was a book by Dr. Richard Taylor, 
in which he simply said, God can put a saint's heart in a college kid, but not a saint's head. That is only gained by experience, time, maturity, walking with God, learning, stumbling, and getting wiser. Here's the sad thing if you're God. I feel sorry for God. God, it takes forever to try to get us to where we'll repent and get saved. Flop around. Hopefully, we'll see that there is a deeper work. We trust Him for it and experience it. Then God sets in to kind of sand on us and hammer on us and tweak this and worry about that and help me here and rebuke me there and discipline me there and chasing me over here and he gets me just to where I'm finally useful and then I'm 80 and the drop dead. Then he starts all over with some other kid. Doesn't make us mature. It doesn't remove the need of constant preservation of purity. Purity is established in my heart in an instant by the full infilling of the Holy Spirit. But it is, it's necessary that I be kept pure because I'm in a wicked world. Infection is all around me. And God has to keep me clean. It's, you know, I'm splitting hairs here, but for reason. He doesn't keep cleansing me as if I am perpetually infected and he keeps cleansing me. He cleanses me, but then he preserves that. That's a word Paul used in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he prayed. I pray that the very God of peace would sanctify you through and through and preserve you blameless unto the coming of Jesus Christ. That preservation I must have by the constant walking with the Holy Spirit. John, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That word there is present tense. Keeps on keeping us clean. In 9, just two verses later, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's two things. Forgiveness of sins, cleansing of depravity and corruption in our hearts, and that word for cleanse is completed action. Is not present tense. It's not continual. There's one seven is what we have to have. Stay with God. Read our Bibles. Pray. Fight the good fight of faith. Resist temptation. Follow the directions of the Holy Spirit. Serve Him with all of our hearts. And He, it's, that's walking in the light. And His blood keeps us clean. does not remove the need for self-discipline. It makes it effective. Self-discipline of our appetites, our drives, desires, and needs that God built into us 
Self-discipline is a terrible struggle when we still have in here a drift to the ditch. Here I will, forgive me, but I will resurrect, not to bore you too much, the illustration of my first car, that it had a strong suspension mess and it was out of alignment and it always pulled to the right to the ditch. That's double-mindedness. I wanted to go this way. God wanted me to go this way, but something inside was going that way. Well, sanctification would take that drift to the ditch out. And then, this is a mistake that people think, then what? It was a 1954 Chevy, but it might as well have been a self-driving Tesla. Don't need to steer it. Don't need to do anything with it. It's sanctified. The drift is gone. Pull, the pull is gone. I'll just put my hands behind my head and just lean back. No. I still had to steer the thing. And there were external environmental things that would send it whatever way. The slope of the highway. Rain, snow, high winds, whatever. I still had to steer that thing. It just had that inbred pull over here that, that complicated steering it. I still had to steer it. We still have to be self-disciplined, resist temptation. Paul said, I buffet my body and keep it under so I don't fall into temptation. But now that self-discipline is so much more effective and easier. The life of a sanctified person is in one way sometimes harder in that Satan trains his every machine gun he's got on you. If he can bring down a pure heart, that's a bigger victory. But also, if we, if we can walk with God successfully and keep the victory, which we can because God said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll help you, call on me, trust in me, I'll keep you. <clears throat> Self-discipline then is effective. We can have the victory. Two more things. It does not make us all uniform. Meaning, everybody is still going to be their own temperament, their own personality, with their own set of scars, history, their temperament. Some people, not, I, I won't get it off into all that, I'll wait. But everybody's different. And sanctification then doesn't make every single person in a household, in a congregation, on a church board meeting, vote the same way. Well, if we're all pure-hearted, we all... No. No, there's, there's a billion differences. That is why Paul told the Ephesians, 
He said, forbear one another. And the word there just simply means put up with one another. We will sometimes grate against each other. We have differences of opinions. I've pastored people, not anymore, because it's, it's been enough years. When I first started pastoring, I pastored a lot of people who grew up in the Depression. Their attitude towards spending church money drove me up a wall, across the ceiling, and down the other side wall. But it took me, and I looked at him. I don't trust God. God will help us. We'll be okay. And we were. But it took me a while to realize they were marked by that. They never forgot it. I can still remember sitting at the dinner table. Sometimes we're hearing the same story. Didn't hear starvation stories from my mom. She grew up in a farm. They had plenty to eat. Just didn't have any money. But my dad would talk about how as a city kid, his mom would go down, buy a ham hock for 10 cents and some beans for, you know, navy beans and how they'd stretch that for who knows how long to try to make it. That marks you. So what I interpreted is, ah, these people just don't trust God. That marked them. And I had to remember that. So while they were praying, I'm sure, praying for grace to put up with me, and I was praying for grace to put up with them, you know, God's <laughs> looking down on all this. It's not going to make us all the same. Finally, it does not alter our basic temperament. God, God doesn't have any quarrel with your temperament, my temperament, your personality. He's the one that made us like we are. He hasn't got a problem with how he wired us. What he does have a problem with is the infection of sin and what it has done to my temperament and to my personality. It warps and sometimes makes more prominent the already prominent aspects of my personality. The opinionated person, the person that's sort of the take charge, the type A, sin makes that worse. Sin makes that almost insufferable. Because not only are we the first to speak our mind, we know we're right, never been wrong in our whole lives. The only time we've been wrong is the one time we thought we were wrong. We found out we weren't. Now, you take people like that with the prominent aspects of their temperament infected with sin, and you got what we got in our world today. And it's in churches. Even after our hearts are purified, those prominent and scarred aspects of our temperament, now it's time for God to gradually, progressively work on those, sand off the sharp edges, open our eyes, help us see ourselves, help us hear ourselves, help us recognize other people's temperaments, pray for grace to put up with them. We learn. That's maturity. Forgiveness of sins is instantaneous. Cleansing of depravity of the heart that we're born with is instantaneous. Maturity in grace is gradual all of our lives. I gotta quit. 
I think that there's some, hopefully this helps. And I want to talk some more um, next week about specific infirmities. Infirmities is a word that's used in Scripture for weaknesses. It shows up a number of times. And that's what we, we deal with and what's before us after the sin infection is dealt with, then we got to go to work, which is a lifelong work, on infirmities. Some are changeable, some are not. We need to know some of that. And I hope that'll help us then have out of our minds erroneous notions about what sanctification does for us, the kind of ideas that make it seem impossible, hopeless, or I, I just can't figure it out. So, that's my aim. I feel like this is what God wants us to hear. Let's bow our heads. And I'll ask Dan to come and dismiss, dismiss us with prayer. Father in heaven, this morning in this church, in the quiet of the sanctuary, I just pray, Lord, that we realize as Christians there's work to be done. That work that needs to be done, Lord, is in the first thing we need to do is listen to you, what you say to our hearts, and then cooperate with you in what you say. And then just determine to walk alongside you as we grow, to keep hand in hand, eyes on you, and all that we do. That way we're heading in the right direction, Lord. Because with all these things said here this morning, this is the good news of the gospel, that salvation is not the end of the work that you want to do in our hearts. So, Lord, I just pray that we be a church that would cooperate with your promptings, with your Holy Spirit, that we just cooperate with you in whatever it is that you want to do in us and through us. That's the good news, is that you're not done. Help us to hang on to you tightly, Lord, as we walk this walk. Help us to be obedient to you by your grace. And always remember, Lord, you've given us everything we need for righteousness and godly living. Help us to remember that. And then when we drift and we forget and we walk out of this room and we get in the busyness of our lives and when you tap us on the shoulder during the week and you go, hey, do you remember what we talked about Sunday morning? Man, Lord, just help us to obey you. Help us to be that church, a church of obedient Christians that walk with the one they love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.